Well, here we are, going to talk about dating again. Um, my wife tried to get me to watch some of this, uh, what was it called? Love is Blind show. She did her research, like, I feel like half the day today, and I did get to watch, watch some of it. It was an interesting premise when you kind of just get thrown into a situation. I guess they had some free agency in it, but then they're in this situation, and then they kind of make the best of it. It's so fascinating, just all the various ways of thinking about dating. Like I said last week, you know, there's the people that think courtship is, is biblical, and then the people that are like, well, no, dating isn't in the Bible, and all. I talked about some of that kind of stuff. I think, again, one of the main things I think is helpful to remember as we go through this um, tonight is the purpose of dating has to be the purpose for which God made all of us, right? The purpose for which he made us is to enjoy him, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Um, that really is the purpose of everything that human beings are about. Whether it's school, whether it's art, whether it's medicine, science, business, to glorify God and enjoy him forever should always be the ultimate purpose. And when you think about um, particularly relationships, you know, there's this very important passage in the Bible where Abraham is called by God and God says to him, I will bless you to be a blessing, right? And, and I think that that's another way to think about the purpose of all your relationships, dating and otherwise, is to be blessed to be a blessing. And one of the reasons I think that's important is so often people think of the purpose of dating as finding someone to marry, right? If, which is a valid subpurpose. As a matter of fact, we're going to look at a, there's a verse in Proverbs that says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And when the Bible holds up something as a good thing, it's something worth seeking after. This is not to diminish the beauty and the importance of the call to singleness, which I've already talked about, okay? The hard thing about doing this series is you can't say everything all at once. So I did talk about singleness, right? Some of you were here, some of you are new, and so there's two things I wanna say. One, I normally preach from a passage in the Bible, but this is like one of those really weird weeks. Not only this series is a little more topical this semester, but then when you come to dating, obviously there's no passage in the Bible that's just about dating. But last week we did talk about 1 John 4, and how perfect love casts out fear, and how important it is that we know and rely on the love God has for us. I really am intentional when I think of this series as gospel-driven relationships. Like something is driving us towards relationships, always. Fear, control, loneliness, or the love of God. Uh, you know, the love of God, 1 John 4 says, we love because he first loved us. It doesn't say that we love God because he first loved us. We love because God first loved us. His love is the only thing big enough to set us free to love the way we were made to love. Right? So tonight, I wanted to start with that passage that we used as a call to worship, just say a couple things about it. Again, this, this is one of my absolute favorite verses, and it has a lot to do, I think, with setting us free to live 
the kind of life God wants us to live. So if you want to look at it, ah, it's 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Just a couple verses, but, but really important ones. This is God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, or some translations say you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I always love um, verse 4, that for those who have been born again, and notice born again is not something you do. Born, born again is something that happens to you by God's grace and by his power. And when that happens to you, you're given an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What, what is this? undefiled, unfading, unperishable inheritance. Well, it's the beauty of the righteousness of Christ that has been credited to your account. When I say that this sets us free, so much of our life is about trying to clean ourselves up in God's sight and in the sight of others. But what the gospel says is, you don't need to do that because Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners. Lived and died in the place of sinners and secured for us a beauty that is unfading. And you know why it's unfading? Because it's kept in heaven where you can't get at it to screw it up. Here's, Here's the heart of the gospel. If you put your faith in Christ, which happens by his grace and his grace alone, so all praise to him. It's like Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher said, faith is like this exotic plant that's not native to the soil of the human heart. If you find it growing there, somebody must have planted it. And if you find it growing there, praise be to God and know this, that you have a beauty that's been secured for you, that you can't get at to mess it up. What God thinks about you is what he thinks about his own son. And we know what he thinks about his own son because he already declared at the very end of Jesus' life, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And if you are in Christ, If you are in union with Christ, is is the way the Bible talks about it, he says that about you as well. You have this beauty. And and it's out of that that we are to live. You know, it's been said this way that, you know, the Christian week begins with Sunday. 
because we begin with resting in the gospel and out of that we live. We don't work all week to hopefully get to rest at the end. We begin with rest in Christ and what he has secured for us. So important that we remember that as we go through some of this stuff, because I'll tell you what, you know, maybe the first thing I want to talk about is the problem with most Christian books on dating. There's actually several problems with most Christian books on dating, most Christian books on the Christian life. Honestly, the first is what I would call a super spirituality. Uh, In other words, feeling like you have to be like incredibly weird to be an actual, to be, to be a real Christian. Here's what I mean. Um, Christians love to say we should focus on being the right person rather than on looking for the right person. And that sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? Sounds so nice. But it's not biblical. Now, should you focus on being the right person, growing more and more to become like Jesus? Absolutely. Fight against sin. Seek to, to know and to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Absolutely. But the Bible never says that you're not to seek after relationship with other people. Like I said, the Proverbs says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And the Bible says you should seek after good things. The Bible doesn't say that real Christians, real truly spiritual people, are people who just kind of are so content with God that they don't need anybody else. And you remember the very first week of this semester, this series, we talked about how Adam and Eve in the garden with a perfect, sorry, Adam in the garden with a perfect relationship with God, with no sin in the world, God said it is not good for him to be alone. So if you think that all you need is God, then in some ways you're like more spiritual than than God himself. (laughs) Because God said, no, it's not good for man to be alone, even before sin entered in the world. And how much more do we need one another now? There's that verse in Ecclesiastes about a cord of three strands. Now, listen, if you ask me to do your wedding one day and you want to use that verse in, in, in your wedding and tell me that it's about your, the husband and the wife and Jesus, I'll say, no, I'm not going to do that because it's not about that at all. It's about two friends are good because they can help one another in the brokenness and the difficulty of this life. And three friends are even better. It's not talking about Jesus and the couple. Sorry, it's not. But it is talking about the importance of having other people and not just God, right? So, super spirituality. Um, The Bible says there are things that are good. The Bible says that God created um, all kinds of things for us to enjoy. And, And to think that the more spiritual you are, the more miserable you'll be, or the less you'll enjoy anything except prayer and Bible study is not a biblical notion. But I hear it all the time, especially in books on dating. I guess because they don't want teenagers thinking that anything is good except for quiet times and evangelizing your roommate. And that's just not, that's not what the Bible talks about, about the life that we're called to live. There is God-glorifying potential like beyond what you can imagine in this world that he's built, and he's called us to work it and to bring out all the God-glorifying potential that he's built into this world, right? That's why you're in school, I hope. That's why you're studying all kinds of things and you're not just going to go be a missionary somewhere. Missionaries are great, wonderful. But the Bible's teaching on work is there's not this hierarchy. 
And that if you're really spiritual, you would never do any kind of secular work and you would never like have actual relationships that would bring you joy and pleasure. It's not biblical, okay? So that's the first. The second is they present often this simpleton approach to the Christian life, which is basically thinking that you can kind of come up with all these little rules to make life work. Um, that's not the, the, the Christian the Christian way to live. As a matter of fact, there are two verses in the Proverbs that are right next to each other to show you that you can't make a bunch of rules and just try to follow the rules. That's not what the Christian life is about. It says uh, right next to each other, answer a fool according to his folly and don't answer a fool according to his folly. And they're stuck right next to one another so that you would be sort of weaned off of this simpleton approach to the Christian life. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Of course, one of my professors, Dr. David Jones, who's now with the Lord, used to say, the real problem in the Christian life is not so much figuring out what to do as finding the courage to do it. So it's not enough just to have the rules. That's not the real problem. The real problem is having the courage to do it, especially if it means fighting against sin and living for God's glory. So the simpleton approach um, to the Christian life, all these kinds of books are like, if you do this, then your life will work wonderfully. And if you don't do this, it'll be a disaster. It's amazing how many Christian books I read that if you follow the advice of the author, you know, your life goes well, and if you don't, everything kind of falls apart. It's not the way it works. It's not the way it works. Third, there's a real disturbing lack of grace. Uh, here's a quote. I, I won't tell you where it's from, unless you, you know, ask me afterwards, I might. Uh, we must adjust our lives to God so that he can do through us what he wants to do. God is not our servant to make adjustments to our plans. We are his servants, and we adjust our lives to what he is about to do. That first line, guys, this is horrendous theology. We adjust our lives to God so that he can do what he wants to do? <laughs> Listen, this is a recipe for despair. If you think that God can't work unless you do something? Tremendous theology. But it's all over the place in Christian books. I hear people say this kind of stuff all the time. All I can say is the Jews planned to take, make Jesus king by force, and Peter said, you don't have to go to the cross. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, and he did what he wanted to do regardless of whether people gave him permission or yielded to him or opened themselves up to him or adjusted their lives, God does what God will do. Should you get in line with what he's doing in his kingdom? Absolutely. Is he thwarted by you not doing that? No. And isn't that good news? Man, it's a recipe for despair to think that God can't work unless you give him permission or unless you kind of cooperate with him, all right? So, super spirituality, simpleton approach to Christian life, a disturbing lack of grace, problems. But let me just go through a few. Now, I, the Puritans used to use this phrase called casuistry. I think I've heard other people using that term more recently. Basically means a case of conscience. It's a way of saying, okay, well, what about this? And what about this situation? What about this situation, right? So let me take some of those. I've been doing this a long time. So these are some kinds of things that we get asked uh, from time to time. And um, some random thoughts, kind of just catch-all thoughts about dating. The first is friendship is the primary thing. 
in choosing well. Sexual attraction is secondary, right? Becoming one flesh with someone, what the Bible talks about. We're going to talk about marriage um, after, well, there, yeah, it's coming up. It's actually going to be a convo. Lizzie submitted it for convo on the 17th. We'll talk about marriage, right? So um, becoming one flesh is more than just about sex. It's about uniting in all kinds of ways, joining lives to seek the advancement of God's kingdom in the world, right? You want to look for someone that you would be with that you could, that you're better for the sake of the kingdom than you are apart, right? And yet Tim Keller says this, I think I mentioned this last week, but it's worth repeating. For most of us, when we walk into a room, maybe you even did this tonight, we immediately eliminate 90% of the people based on their looks as potential people we might want to date, right? And, and what Keller would say, and I agree with him, is that we have it backwards. We look for people that turn us on, and then we try to make them our friends, but we would be wiser to consider who we could grow old with and enjoy getting to know for the next 50, 60 years. And here's the thing about this. Friends are found by having a mutual love for something else. C.S. Lewis puts this in his book, The Four Loves. He says, friendship has to be about something. Lovers look into each other's eyes. Friends are side by side looking at something and say, I see it. Do you see it too? And marriage should be about both of those things. About both of those things, right? So I, I think when you're thinking about dating, it's good to do some side by side things, not just face to face things. Now, this doesn't mean that physical attraction is irrelevant. Remember, you go back to the story of the garden when God makes Eve and shows Adam, this woman that he's made, what does Adam say? He breaks out into poetry. The only pre-fall, pre-sin entering in uh, language in the Bible is poetry. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Wow. That's what Adam says. So this is not to say that physical attraction doesn't matter, but heed well what it says in Proverbs 29, verses 5 and 6. It says that a flatterer is, one, is like one who sets a snare for your feet. Someone who only cares about your looks and regularly praises you for that alone is building a kind of dependence that will, in the end, make you more and more dependent on maintaining your looks. Flattery is a snare. It's nice for people to recognize and tell you that you're beautiful, right? But if that can't be the main thing. It can't be the main thing. Third point, talk through weirdness. Talk through weirdness. Like I said, before, you've probably heard me say this, there are two interpretations to every event. This is why I hate most romantic comedies. <laughs> or at least they frustrate me to no end, until, until the end. Sometimes they resolve. But it's this, like, people don't talk. They don't use words. They think that they can communicate by just doing something. And here's the thing, guys and girls are kind of different, right? And girls, guys are really not nearly as good at picking up... Um, subtle things as you think they might be. 
Um, the guy who did Wendy and I's premarital counseling, Mike Smith, he used this illustration to say, you know, guys have like the, the eight color crayon, you know, Crayola set, and women have like the full 64, you know, <laughs> box. Yeah. They just, they have more tools. They have more tools to work with. They really do. Now, again, anytime I say something general about men and about women, you understand there's always differences, right? I don't want to fall into unhelpful stereotypes, but it does seem that women have more kind of equipped more with this kind of subtle stuff. And, um, and, and guys just need to mess. So that means, if that's true, then it means we're always going to kind of miss one another unless we actually talk. We can't just assume because, you know, like the guy might, might, you might go out with somebody and then the guy's like, you know, I'm not going to call her for two days because I don't want to freak her out and come on too strong. And she's like, you didn't call me for two days. Like, what's that? Like, if you don't talk about it, there's two possible interpretations to why that call didn't happen. Right? So you got to talk through weirdness. It's part of growing up. Right? Uh, it's, it's such a shame when you see people that just don't talk and then they make assumptions and then things kind of fall apart. It's a shame. But beware of too many define the relationship or DTR talks, right? I think so many people have these DTR talks all the time to try to eliminate risk and to achieve a sense of control. You, you should think about why do I want to have this? Do I want to do this because I think the other person might be confused and I need to clarify? Like I did that with Wendy, right? I asked her out, and you know, I guess twice in a weekend. And then um, she went out with somebody else. That's another story. And then, yeah, she'd already had that date set up before I even asked her out, right? So she did that, and then I heard about it, and then I was like, all right. But here's the thing. I was the only single pastor at this big church where the, where the senior pastor used to regularly say that the kingdom of God will know the kingdom of God's coming if Kevin Twitt takes a wife. So I knew that if I, yeah, it was brutal. If I, I knew that if I asked her out in that community context, everybody was going to be like, what's going on with you and Kevin? And so I felt like it was, uh, it was really on me to give her an answer for that instead of like making her wonder. So, you know, I talked about what I was thinking about doing, right? She can tell you more of that story maybe if she wants. But I, I, I think it, it was more from my perspective, because all my friends were like, that's dumb. Don't do that. You've only like went out in two days. So I was like, yeah, but I don't want her to be like wondering so when people come up to her, I think the fact that I've been too afraid to ask people out for years has now kind of come on to her and is going to make her life more complicated. And I need to take that responsibility on myself. Right. It wasn't a sense of, well, I don't know. I don't really want to invest in this unless I'm sure that you like me, too, because if I'd asked her that, we wouldn't have went out anymore. Right. Because we had one of those talks later on. So I, I think this sense of thinking about serving other people helping to avoid confusion rather than trying to make sure that this is worth investing in. I don't generally think that's a good reason to have a DTR kind of talk. It might be if it's been going on for a long time and you feel like this guy is saying one thing but acting another way or this girl, I can't really tell. Like maybe you need to have that so you don't get mad at each other, you know, have that kind of clarification. But beware of doing it out of your insecurity to try to feel a sense of control. That generally won't go too well. And I don't think it's very helpful. And, and I think there's a parallel. You know, this is one of my favorite um, little quotes to share with people. There's a guy named William Romaine. Yeah, just like Romaine lettuce. He lived back in the uh, 1700s. And he, he's wonderful for letters. People would write him letters uh, for pastoral counsel, and he'd write them back. And he talks about this person who was really 
feeling like very insecure in their relationship with God. And, and here's um, what he writes to this friend about this. I think there's a parallel to relationships we have with one another. He says to his friend, you're looking not at the object of your faith, at Jesus, but at your faith. You would draw your comfort not from him, but from your faith. And because your faith is not quite perfect, you are as much discouraged as if Jesus was not quite a perfect savior. But besides this mistake, I can see one of the greatest sins in your way of reasoning, and yet finally cloaked under a very spacious covering. That means, you know, it's, it's like hidden. I pulled it off, I pulled off the covering, and behold, there was rank treason under it, against the crown and majesty of my Lord and God, for you are kept looking at your act of believing. Like, you keep looking at, do I have faith? How is my faith? How is my faith today? You're looking at your act of believing. What for? Why, certainly that you may be satisfied with it. What then? No doubt you will then rest in it and upon it, satisfied that now that Jesus Christ is yours, you'll be satisfied that he's yours because you're satisfied with your faith. This is a making a Jesus of your faith and is in effect taking the crown of crowns from his head and placing it upon the head of your faith. Lord, grant that you may never do this anymore. I, man, there are whole like kind of theological church systems where every week people are invited to do an altar call just to make sure that they really, 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 really mean it this time. The quickest way to fall out of love with anybody is to focus on the relationship rather than the person. And it's that way with Jesus, too. Sometimes we're just always looking at our faith rather than looking at Jesus and his beauty, right? And that can happen with too many DTR talks. It doesn't help very much your faith to constantly have DTR talks, and you don't need to. Because as we already said, what Jesus has done has solidified this relationship. He's secured for you an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So you don't need to be obsessed about that right? How about your soulmate? This question came up in our little Instagram. I thought it would be worth talking about. Listen, man, be very careful how you invoke the idea of God's will. Does God have a plan for you that if you will marry, there's a particular person? I just imagine so. If he knows every hair on your head. But the real issue with this is how would you know? How do you know? And, and really, what do you expect this person to be? Uh, I mentioned that guy, Aziz, you know, in his book, Modern Romance. He says the real difference in, in dating today is not so much all the technology and whatnot and the apps and the dating online, all that kind of stuff. That changes things a little bit. But the real difference, he says, is this demand or kind of the, the, the wanting someone who's not just like a friend and a lover, and it's like everything all wrapped into one. This idea of a soulmate, right? I, did you guys ever watch that Jerry Maguire movie? Right, right, you complete me, right? You remember that line, right? We all like, oh, no, you don't want that. You don't want that. Like the Bible never says that you should put that kind of weight on another person. That's idolatry. It's not receiving this other person as a gift that God has given you. All praise to God. 
The soulmate thing is, is basically wanting something that only Jesus can provide. And no actual human being can take that. No relationship can bear that kind of weight. And it will make you forever discontent. Forever discontent, right? You, you'll be focused on, is this the one? Rather than, would this person be a good person to date or to marry? And I don't find anything in the Bible that, about you looking for the one in that way. Make the best decision you can. Pray about it. Get advice. But thinking that God is just going to provide this person that's going to be everything to you, he's already done it. And his name is Jesus. All right? Um, guys, uh, be men. Pursue well. It's really nice when dating doesn't feel like a, a, a constant audition. But it's a weird thing, dating, isn't it? It's like a sense of which you're not yet committed, but you're kind of trying it out. But it really is different than marriage. There really is something different about marriage, the security that it brings, the way that you then have to work out things, the, the sense that if we get into a fight or a disagreement that it could just end like that. It's, it's just not very conducive for some of the grown-up things that you need to learn how to do in marriage. Um, but it is what it is, right? And, and I do think, you know, from one perspective, there are lots of people you could marry, right? But the real thing I think you should be doing is praying that God would give you his love for this person, right? Uh, I mean, Jesus says that our love for him is like the morning mist that disappears. That's in Hosea, as soon as the sun comes up. So how can we expect to love another sinner? And here's what happens so often. There's this adrenaline rush that comes from the pursuit that we think is love. And then, you know, like it's one thing, it's like, you know, can I, can I take her hand, right? There's like a little zing of like excitement and, you know, will she let me kiss her goodnight and put my arm around, all those sorts of things. Can we become Facebook official or whatever it is these days, right? <laughs> all these like carefully nuanced, you know, levels. It's really amazing. Um, but, but there's something about like every one of those things is exciting, but like, I'm, there's not an adrenaline rush, like if I come up to my wife and take her hand, am I like, what's she gonna do, right? It's, dif <laughs> it's different. And so if I think, if I think that, that love is that adrenaline rush of like, and sort of the pursuit, so to speak, like what's gonna happen like when we're married, right? Now I'm not saying that you still don't like go on dates and to pursue, and I'm not very good at that, I know that. But I am saying that so often that adrenaline rush we associate with the feelings of love, and then when it kind of changes, which it will go up and down, then we feel like our, we're not into it anymore. And, and so you see like this, like pursue really strong, and then you like kind of get the object of your pursuit, and then you're kind of bored with it. And some of that is mistaking the adrenaline rush of the pursuit for love. Love is not a feeling. It's not. It's way, it's way more than that. Um, but let me say this. It's not a sin for a girl to ask a guy out. You know why I know that? Because the Bible doesn't say it's a sin. And we have to be careful about calling things sin that the Bible doesn't call sin. But you do need to not be naive. There are cultural expectations. I grew up in the Northeast. I remember one time when a girl asked me out, it kind of freaked me out, right? Um, I don't think we even ever actually went out now that I think about it. It was like in high school. 
But, um, but I remember just thinking, like, it's weird. And then I had to think about, well, is there anything wrong with that? Or is it just kind of the way I think about it or the way, you know, maybe people, my friends thought about it? I, I do think at some point, you know, there should be like a, you know, an organically, you know, initiative, you know, should at least eventually happen. But I, listen, if you're like good friends with somebody and you're like, it's really getting to the point where you feel like there's going to be some hurt feelings, misunderstandings, there's no reason why you can't say something. There's also no guarantee that it will turn out how you want, right? But, but you know, again, I think it's good to talk through weirdness. What about dating non-Christians? Well, you know, in some ways, like even to raise this question seems like, oh, so judgmental. Okay, I get that. But the Bible is clear that you should not marry someone who doesn't share your faith if you're a Christian, right? If you come ask me to do your wedding and you're a Christian and you want to marry someone who's not a Christian, I could not do your wedding because I would have to be pronouncing God's blessing on something that God says he doesn't bless, right? And that's hard. And I, I have a friend of mine just the other day was asking about this, somebody that he loves dearly who wants to marry somebody that is not a Christian and they're asking him to do the wedding and you can't, you can't do it, okay? But that doesn't automatically mean that you can't date somebody who's not a Christian, but I think you should be real careful. Tim Keller makes a helpful distinction. Now, he's pastoring in New York City, where he's got a lot of people who, you know, for instance, like you might have a, like a Greek event, right? And you have to take a date to something. So he would say there's a difference between something where the purpose is to do the thing and you have to have a date versus a date where the purpose is to get to know the person. I think that's a helpful distinction. But I still think you should be careful because you probably are going to marry somebody that you date. And um, it's easy to kind of have your heart get kind of torn, right? Um, how about this? Breaking up. How, whenever I do weddings, I always tell people that marriage is for more than just two. It affects the whole community. And breaking up does too. And it's hard. Gosh, it's so hard. But here's the thing. In your sadness, you still have to honor God in the way you talk, in the way you act towards the person. And for all of you who may use, I sound like I'm from New Jersey, um, all, of you, all of you who are maybe friends with those who are going through hard things, be careful in your encouragement that you don't help nurture bitterness. It's really hard to not like take sides right? Um, but be careful with that, right? This question, you know, Carter said you should definitely address this. What if you get asked out and you don't want to go out? This is one of those funny things, like I'll talk to guys and I'll talk to girls and the, so often, the, well, often I'll talk to girls like, well, yeah, I, I didn't really want to go out with him, but I went out on one date just to kind of let him down easy. And I was like, well, okay, if you don't tell him that's why you went out, right? Most of the guys are like, that's not helpful, no, that's not what you think. Yeah, it sucks. But on the other hand, like, that, on the other hand, though, people are like, if somebody asks me out and I don't think I could see myself dating them long term, I'm not even going to go out with them once. Right? So I don't know. Like, you're kind of stuck. What are you going to do? Right? Um, my advice, ask, ask for what you want. In other words, Let's go to go coffee and, and get to know one another. Listen, guys, you can't ask out a girl for coffee and pretend like you don't care what she says. 
As much as you try to make it like lowball it, you're still putting yourself out there at a certain level. But you also are trying to be like, look, I'm not asking you to marry me, right? Again, the purpose of dating is to be blessed and to be a blessing. If we all had that view, it really would take some of that pressure off, you know? But if you're like, okay, well, the coffee went well, I'd like to ask you out on a date. Well, then, you know, then you're at least being clear and you're not trying to like subtly, you know, slide into something, right? Um, A couple more things, and then I'm going to get Carter and and Wendy up here. Um, What about those who've done things they are ashamed of? Because it's, you know, last week somebody was asking me about something I'd never heard of, but actually several people had heard of it, and I was amazed. Um, What they call damaged goods theology. You ever, anybody heard of this? Well, I know somebody did because they asked me this question. Um, it, it was a thing they've been taught. Basically this, that if you had, you know, sinned in dating or you'd went too far sexually, um, that you were then damaged goods and you probably should only ever, like, date or marry somebody else who was also damaged goods. I was like, what in the world kind of theology? Are there consequences to how you live? Yeah, absolutely. Is there forgiveness? Yes. Does anybody come into a dating relationship without baggage? No. Listen, the only way, you know, you wear, you know, white wedding dress on your wedding, anybody is out of faith. Right? None of us are pure. None of us are pure. And God's grace is Real. No one comes into a dating relationship or marriage without baggage. Wendy, uh, you know, she'll often preach this little message because sometimes people like are still driven by shame so much that they don't feel like they could deserve a relationship that's healthy or that's kind. They're living out of that shame. And, and, And Wendy will regularly, you know, try to say, like, what qualifies you? To have a relationship that's life-giving and kind is what Jesus did on the cross, not how well you've lived, right? And it's better single than settle. She preaches that little sermon all the time. Better single than settle. Sometimes people can get manipulated with their shame into relationships that they really shouldn't be in, right? What about physical boundaries? Well, there are some clear boundaries in Scripture. There are. No sex outside of marriage. Proverbs 5.18 says you should only delight in the breast of your wife, right? So the Bible does have some clear things. But here's the thing. When people ask about physical boundaries, I always wish they would say, what's the purpose of sexual intimacy? When people ask, well, how far is too far? I'm like, that's not really the way to think about it. Though the Bible does have some clear guidance on that, of course. But I would encourage everyone to reflect on why they're wanting to express physical intimacy, even kind of low-grade intimacy like um, kissing. Like, why? And what are you trying to say? I really do believe, biblically speaking, sexual intimacy was created for you to say, I belong to you. I belong to you. And at some level, there should be some kind of commiserate uh, or commensurate, I guess, um, commitment that goes along with the level of sexual intimacy. Right. But I'll, I'll get Wendy. She can say some more about that. Um, I should say this as well. Beware manipulation and inappropriate power dynamics. Right. Dating sexual relationship that's happening in secret. Um, 
is often being hidden for a reason. Don't let shame and guilt keep you from getting help, right? Belmont has an office for Title IX stuff, for assault, manipulation, stalking, all those sorts of things. All that stuff goes on, and it's real. And sometimes you feel like it's your fault, you feel ashamed, you feel guilty, and you don't tell anybody what's going on. Please don't do that. What about couples praying together? <laughs> you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't want to make this joke, but I will anyway. You know, so, so you, again, you need to be careful. It's hard to become very intimate in some ways and then try not to be intimate in other ways, right? I do think, I've seen Christian couples often feel like they should have a level of sharing and intimacy that probably goes beyond the commitment level of the relationship. I think that intimacy, even, you know, sharing your life together, that kind of stuff, should always be connected to the level of commitment. And I think sometimes Christians feel like, well, I'm a Christian, so I should be open and honest about everything when there's not that safety net of commitment. And I, I think that the praying together thing, you got to be careful with all that. Um, how about this? Why don't I get Wendy and Carter? Do we have time to take some questions?